Let's get our Bibles open. Let's open to Acts 19. Um, and as you're opening your Bibles, uh, I know that, that kids do not like uh, doing chores, right? There, there's no kid that likes doing chores, or at least I've not met a kid. Certainly my four kids don't like it. And I was no different. I didn't like doing chores, whether it was taking out the trash or uh, cleaning up my room or washing dishes or cleaning uh, toilets. But the chore that I absolutely hated the most as a kid was raking leaves. I don't know if you relate to that, but I hated raking leaves. My parents, uh, we lived on just, I mean, just in a pretty normal neighborhood, but we had some big trees and many of those big trees had leaves. One was an oak tree. And um, I respect that oak tree and I hate that oak tree. I hated all the leaves that it dumped every year. We had uh, other trees that dumped leaves. We had these two tall birch trees that, that dumped leaves every year. And, and not only were they a ton of leaves, but they're little leaves, right? So little leaves are harder to pick up. My, my friend uh, in the neighborhood, Camden, they had a maple tree with just these big leaves that they were so easy to pick up. And I was jealous of my buddy Camden. So I grew up and as an adult, while it wasn't the number one priority in looking at houses, I, I noted like, okay, how many leaves am I gonna have to deal with here? And, and I hope that I have matured and I'm not as grumpy about raking leaves now, uh, but still to this day, it's not my favorite. But, but I, I remember as a kid, there was one year in particular uh, where, where leaves were falling. And I always hoped that uh, the leaves would fall really before the rains came because it was just way easier to deal with dry leaves than, than wet leaves. And some of you are nodding your, your kindred spirits with me and hating leaves. Um, uh, so I, I'm always cheering for the leaves to fall sooner. And obviously there's nothing I could do about it. But one year, uh, a good number of leaves fell, but there are a lot that just stuck on the tree. And we made it all the way through fall. I'm like, what is going on? And made it into December, and these, uh, there were like these rebel leaves that would not let go of the tree. And, and, and I was waiting and waiting and waiting. It was clear into January. I've, I've learned since that, that there can be uh, weather events that can actually kind of, they keep a number of the leaves on a tree, either, either too hot or too cold at the right time will keep leaves stuck in there for a long time. Uh, but we got into January, maybe it was even February, and suddenly the leaves started falling. And it wasn't because of wind. There was no wind going on. There's nothing that, that I could tell that was happening. But I found out why these leaves all of a sudden were, were, were finally abandoning this tree that they'd been holding on to for so long. Um, there, was, there was new life in the tree. Spring was coming. And though I couldn't see the buds on the trees forming yet in, in the next several weeks, I would be able to. So what was happening was this new life within the tree was pushing out these old dead leaves. I thought, man, isn't that just like life in Christ? Right? We, we, and we've seen this in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit brings life to a person and these, these dead ways of, of living um, that, that people love before meeting Jesus, they're getting pushed out as, as God is at work, as there's this new growth by the Spirit. In last week's passage, uh, new believers, they started just burning these valuable possessions because they saw these possessions that they used to love, right? Possessions that it, it felt like life to them. They, they'd come to see that, no, these in fact were dead. And maybe when you read uh, that part of Acts 19, you just thought, oh man, isn't that a little extreme? Like, couldn't they have sold those valuable possessions and, and, and somehow use them for good, use them for gospel purposes, but this new life in them 
was pushing out, like those old dead leaves, it was pushing out what, what, what wanted to hang on in them, but the Spirit was at work. And we see this throughout the book of Acts, that the gospel disrupts. The gospel disrupts lives of individuals. It disrupts culture, uh, which we'll see in our passage today. That The gospel is a threat to the way things are without Christ. The gospel is good news to those who believe in Jesus, but to those who don't, it is upsetting. So we're going to start in verse 21. We'll go all the way uh, through 41 today. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia uh, and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the, sim- the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. One very clear theme that we see in the book of Acts is that the gospel goes forth. It continues to increase, even, even in places where there is strong opposition to the gospel. There are some that come to believe, in fact, many that come to believe. And it's easy for us uh, to think about just, just our time and just our part of uh, not only the world, but, but our country and be discouraged at how few people believe in Jesus. Or we can even think of the good old days and, and wish for the good old days, which so often when we do that, we forget about what wasn't so good in the good old days, or we seem to make what was good in the good old days really better than it was. But in every age, there's been resistance to the gospel. There's resistance to godliness. The world has always had an appetite for worldliness, and yet we can be encouraged that the gospel is at work, that God is at work. Paul knew the power of the gospel. He said in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul knew uh, the, the power of the gospel in radically saving and changing himself, but he also saw firsthand the power of the gospel in saving people in city after city on his missionary journeys. And Paul also knew firsthand the resistance that comes as some respond to the good news. So in verse 25, we meet this man named Demetrius. He's a silversmith. He made uh, shrines of Artemis, the the goddess, um, and he gathered uh, fellow craftsmen, tradesmen that profited from Artemis. Luke describes Demetrius as bringing no little business. It cracks me up how Luke writes. Like he would say today about the Super Bowl, it's no little game. And, and many of you will eat no little amount of wings in just a few hours. But, but they're getting wealthy off of Artemis. So Demetrius gets, gets them together because of Paul's preaching. Right? People have been turning to Jesus and therefore abandoning false gods, abandoning idols like Artemis. And Artemis uh, was a huge, huge deal. The temple of Artemis was massive. I mean, much, much bigger than a football field. Um, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had been a, a target for multiple attacks. It had been destroyed or damaged and rebuilt several times uh, over the years. After one of the attacks, Alexander the Great offered to fund the rebuilding of the temple of Artemis, but the Ephesians said, no, we want to do it. Right? Can you imagine turning down someone that's going to pay for this thing to be done? But they cared so deeply about it themselves that they wanted to fund the temple themselves. And I... I can't think of uh, a modern parallel. Like I know Camus uh, is a mill town or it was a mill town. Like everything was about making paper so much so that, that our high school, they're the paper makers. Um, and, and I imagine back in the day when the mill was thriving, that the whole town rallied around it, but not, not to this degree, which actually is a good thing. Um, all of these craftsmen, they, they were getting rich off Artemis. Uh, But Paul preached Jesus, and this preaching was effective. We look at verse 26, where Demetrius says, in in Ephesus, people are turning in in all of Asia, in almost all of Asia, Paul's preaching was persuading people. People are turning uh, away in large amounts. They're turning away from idols. They're turning to Jesus. And and Luke records in this uh, ironic tone this quote, right? Demetrius says, Paul even says, that God's made by human hands can't be God's. Can you believe it, right? And, and, and you can picture the craftsman just dumbfounded by a statement like that. Their, their blood isn't fully boiling yet, but it, it, it's heating up for sure. So Demetrius points out to his fellow tradesmen that when people turn to Jesus, they're going to stop worshiping Artemis. And if people stop worshiping Artemis, then our revenue stream dries up, and now their blood is boiling. And this isn't surprising to us as we read this story. People who do not believe in Jesus uh, will be okay with your beliefs as a Christian up to a point, right? Even if they think you're nuts, they'll let you believe in God. You can even believe that there's a creator. You can believe in the virgin birth. You can believe that, that Jesus was, was God, fully God and fully man, that he came in the flesh. You can believe, if you want, that he died and rose again as long as your beliefs about Jesus don't infringe on their lives, on their beliefs. So the gospel disrupts. 
The gospel exposes. It is a direct threat to idols. And Demetrius had connected those dots. Right? If Paul continues to preach, the life that Demetrius had grown accustomed to was in grave danger. His business could get shut down along with all the other idol makers. So we've got to ask ourselves at this point in the story, does your faith, does my faith threaten idols today? Would the idol craftsman call a meeting because of how Christians believe, because of how Christians live? Or do we soften the gospel? Do we try to make it more palatable? Maybe you've heard of contextualizing the gospel. Uh, I, I heard someone say this about contextualizing the gospel. They said, we contextualize the gospel to clarify, not to make it more comfortable. And yet I think the American church, we're tempted to make the gospel more comfortable for those who do not believe in Jesus. And there, there may be many reasons for that, but here's two that I thought of. Uh, one reason I think Christians are, are tempted to make the gospel more comfortable and more palatable for those who do not believe is to get them in the door of a church. Right? And, and I think some of this comes from a good spot. They, they think, well, okay, if, if we can do that, then, man, we'll be able to we'll win them over. But it just... It, 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 they sniff it out. It's a bait and switch when we try and soften the gospel. The other reason I actually think this one is far worse, that we may want to soften the gospel, is actually for our own comfort. And we don't want to mess up the good thing that we have going. We don't want people to reject us. We don't want our, our non-Christian counterparts uh, in our career to look down upon us. We don't want to be seen as fools. But we've got to remember, Paul tells us, the cross is foolishness to the world. Right? We should not be surprised that those who reject the message of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will think that we are foolish. We need to crucify our comfort, which is way easier said than done. Yeah, for many of us, perhaps all of us, comfort is an idol that we wrestle with every single day. The older I get, the more alluring comfort is to me. If we want to be comfortable, what we need to be comfortable with is, is, is recognizing that the gospel disrupts the world, that the gospel is uncomfortable to the world. So we're, we're tempted at times to only show Jesus from, from certain angles that we think people will, will uh, be okay with. Uh, today, commercials for the Super Bowl. I don't know, some of you, that's like your favorite part of the game is watching the commercials, and that's cool. Um, th there's some commercials going on. Perhaps you've heard of this called, uh, it, it's from this group called He Gets Us. Disclaimer, I don't know what to think of this group, but if you don't know about them, they've been doing commercials, different ads for multiple years now about Jesus. Um, and and I've, I've tried looking into who's behind the, the He Gets Us campaign and what do they believe. What, I, I just can't, I can't, uh, I can't figure out who they are or exactly what they believe about Jesus. I know in the last couple of weeks, uh, it came out that the Hobby Lobby owner is, is partially helping fund uh, some of this. Um, I don't know if that's actually true, but I read that somewhere. Um, uh, and and what, what the commercials do from what I can tell is they're, they're trying to present Jesus in a way that, that, um, that, that does make him relatable. And, and to that, I, I, I mean, I get it. And I also say Jesus is relatable. 
right? He came down in the flesh to us because we couldn't come to him. So yes, in that way, he's not relatable. And they're right with this name of their campaign. He gets us. He does get us. So maybe their strategy is great. I have no idea. Um, But even if it's not, I found myself praying this way this week as as culturally people will hear about the he gets us uh, uh, ads, ads today. So I've been praying that there'd be opportunities for believers, right, with their coworkers. Maybe, maybe it's maybe it's tomorrow at work as people are talking about the Super Bowl, and then and then people start talking about commercials, and then someone goes, "Wait a second, there was that commercial about Jesus. That was different." Hey, Susie, like you go to church, right? Like what what was up with that? And, and then suddenly there there are going to be these face to face opportunities to talk with someone and, and say, "Yeah, Jesus does get us. He gets us." because he created us. He gets us better than we get us. He watched us turn on him and rebel from him, but he came after us anyway to rescue us and to reconcile us. I hope that we get opportunities to tell people about Jesus laying down his life in our place, defeating sin so that we can have life in him so that we can be forgiven of everything. So there's a part of me that, that is nervous that maybe this he gets us thing is trying to make Jesus more, more comfortable, maybe trying to soften the gospel. But what I'm not nervous about is that God can use anything. And, and he, he, he's priming the pump for believers to talk about him. The world is, uh, is very happy with aspects of Christianity. Uh, it is safe for us to talk about love. Um, it, is, it is good for us to talk about forgiving one another. Um, people like hearing about Jesus pursuing the marginalized. Uh, but, but when we start getting into uh, talking about needing God to forgive us, when we talk about sin or judgment, and that's when, that's when it can encroach on someone's lifestyle, right? Or, 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 or our Christianity can encroach, it can impact finances of others, and that will strike a nerve, right? People are okay with some amount of God talk. Some people are okay with talking about Jesus um, as long as we don't talk about him needing to die on the cross for us. Now, I'm always interested in a game like the Super Bowl, the interviews afterwards. I'm interested to hear how much talk there is of, of God, because we'll hear some of that today for sure, right? And are there people that will uh, actually talk about Jesus? And, and, and what's the interview going to do if this person really starts talking about Jesus? Like, are they going to cut to another interview? I don't know. Uh, but Demetrius didn't like what Paul said. He didn't like what, what Paul said, that God's made with human hands are not God's. And, and, and Paul's not saying something wild here. Uh, he wasn't trying to, to be this, uh, this troublemaker. He's telling the truth. And earlier I asked if your faith has threatened the idols uh, and the idol makers, but let's personalize it even more. Has your faith threatened your own idols? Does your faith continue to threaten the idols that, that we are tempted by? Right, Demetrius says that, that Paul had persuaded and turned away a great many. Right? This is the new growth pushing out the old dead leaves. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that, that he does in us to put off the old self. So does growth continue to happen in you? Right? Are you joining willingly with the Holy Spirit as he pushes out the old dead parts of you? Or are you still gripping on like those leaves are gripping on to my oak tree? This is a normal aspect 
of life in Christ, that we'll be convicted of sin. It's not just when we come to faith. This will happen over and over again as God refines you, as God matures, right? There'll be thoughts, there'll be behaviors, there'll be attitudes that God will convict us of. And this is that new growth, pushing out what what you used to be okay with. So are we responsive to the Holy Spirit? Is my attitude before the Lord, hey, God, you just say the word and I'll get rid of whatever you want in my life that's not of you. Just help me to see it. Help me to see what needs to change. Are the behaviors that, that not that long ago you had no problem with, but since God has convicted you of them. We read last week, like I mentioned earlier, about people responding to Christ, and there's this bonfire burning up really, really valuable items because they just saw Jesus was better, right? It wasn't even close. They didn't want to to keep what was dead in them in, in the way of their life in Christ. So are we walking away from from what the from the worldly ways that we used to love because they have no value to us? In fact, they're detrimental to us. Think about entertainment. Over the past couple decades as a believer, God has challenged me more times than I can count with what I'm okay being entertained by. I wonder what price are you willing to pay to be entertained? And I don't mean the price of a ticket. I don't mean the price of a streaming service. I mean, what price are we paying with our soul? What price are we paying with our heart? There's this author that I follow, and he asks himself regularly, how is this thing that I'm interacting with shaping my heart, right? So that could be a TV show or a movie or a podcast or an article, a blog, a a YouTube video, uh, the news, right? How is this shaping my heart or how is this discipling me? So have you grown in comfort with entertainment or with media that you once would have avoided? Uh, I think about this with this passage. Like, what, what if Christians had higher standards with what we watched and listened to? Like, how would that affect businesses in our culture? Right? Are, are there idol makers that, that would see like, oh man, this, this chunk uh, of, of the business I was bringing in, it's gone. And how, how might they respond? I don't know who came up with this definition of worldliness, but I I really like it. It'll be on the screen here. Worldliness is making sinful ways normal and making what is godly seem strange. Worldliness is making sinful ways normal and making what is godly seem strange. We feel that today. We feel that, and and really it's always been felt in in every culture, working to normalize what is worldly, but it's not, like I said, it's not a modern phenomenon, right? This is true throughout history, and we see that here in Acts 19 with statues like Artemis. We see this with Demetrius. He wanted idol worship to be normal. He wanted that to be acceptable. Well, the crowd's in an uproar. People are in confusion. They're getting caught up in the energy and the emotion of the crowd. By verse 29, they're flooding into uh, the theater. They're dragging with them a couple of Paul's companions who probably wondered, is this it, right? Like, is this the end of the road for me? 
Paul, man, he wants to go in and, and he wants to do what he can to quiet this crowd down. But the disciples are like, no, Paul, you can't do that. That is not a good plan. Yes, they, they needed God to intervene and, and certainly God could have used Paul, um, but God had other plans that we'll see shortly. Verse 34, this Jewish man named Alexander, he comes before the crowd and he's hoping to quiet them down and make a defense. But when it's realized that, that he's Jewish, the crowd loses their mind. And then for two straight hours, it says, they chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians at the top of their lungs. And that might seem far-fetched to you. Like, what, really? Like two hours they're chanting? And I just ask, have you ever seen a sporting event? Right? I've not been to a Timbers match, the, the men's soccer team in Portland, but I love sports. And, and in my watching of sports, I do think soccer fans are the craziest. They, they have, the, they've got their chants, they've got their songs. And, and I'm, again, I haven't been to a match, but I can imagine in an environment like that with that many people and that energy, you get caught up into it. Uh, we took our family to a Blazer game just this last week. Um, we were way up in the nosebleed section. I knew I was buying really cheap tickets. I didn't know how cheap. <laughs> we got up, I'm like, oh, that's the last row. Um, Blazers lost horribly, which is no surprise this year. We were playing the Bucks. We got absolutely demolished. But my family still had a, a great time. Now, whenever the home team is losing, my experience is uh, the refs, might, or the, the fans might start blaming the refs. Um, and at one point, this chant breaks out about how bad the refs are, and I won't repeat it, but it's going on. It's got some energy. It's gaining momentum. And it was mostly, you know, voices of like middle-aged men, really deep voices. Uh, but then I hear this voice that's not coming from an adult. It's not coming from a man. I look over, it's my eight-year-old daughter <laughs> who is very loudly participating in this chant that I would rather her not participate in. And I, I look at her and she looks at me and she says, what? It's true. <laughs> and I said, that may be true, but we're not going to say that. You can imagine how the crowd got caught up in this. Even those who really didn't know anything about the gospel claims, they were convinced that the worship of Artemis was good. And if Christians were going to say an idol made by human hands couldn't be a God, then they were ready, right? They were on the verge of, of a riot here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the aroma of the gospel. And he says to the perishing world, to those who reject the gospel, it, it, the smell, it's the aroma of death. And what the crowd heard of the good news here, it smells like death. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And before we get into verses 35 through 41 here, I want to ask you a few questions. Is the gospel that you share one that seeks to clarify? Or is it one that, that you try to make comfortable, that you try to soften? And connected with that, are there biblical convictions that you won't share with others because of stigma in our culture? Or are there biblical convictions that you yourself, you won't let yourself be convinced of because our culture sees it so differently? Another question, where is worldliness gaining traction in your heart and in your mind? Is there anything that you need to confess to someone 
for accountability. And, and you might hear the word accountability and just cringe. And, and I, man, I, I get that. I've got some of that in my, my past too, growing up in church. But when I say accountability, I just mean someone that will help you. Right? Someone that will help you grow in godliness. Someone, some, it's so good for someone to know how you are struggling right now in your life in Christ. You know, I, I mean, look for a person that you know will pray for you. A person that will remember to ask, hey, how's that going? A person that will, that will call you out. They'll question you when you're doing something contrary to the, the way of following Jesus. James tells us in James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And conviction of sin, it is a regular thing in following Jesus. If you haven't been convicted of sin in a while, I'm going to guess it's not because you're so holy. I'm going to guess it's because, man, we're holding on for dear life to these dead leaves, these dead things. I'd say confess. The sooner, the better. Right, and man, don't even get out of the building today. If 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 you got something that the Holy Spirit has been convicting you of, don't leave this place without finding a brother or sister in Christ and, and confessing them and asking them to pray for you. Verse thirty-five. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, "Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. We don't really know what that sacred stone was. I'm guessing like a meteorite. Uh, Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you uh, seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he'd said these things, he dismissed the assembly. God didn't need Paul to convince the crowd. He didn't need the, the Jewish guy, Alexander, to do it. He used the town clerk, the man who wasn't a believer, but, but he was God's tool to take care of all of this. And we worry so much, and our Father's in control. And we worry about things that are, are so high above our pay grade. I promise you, if God wants you to worry about something, he will instruct you in that. He's not instructed me to worry yet about anything. And I don't know what you're currently worrying about. I don't know what you'll be tempted to worry about in the upcoming weeks or months, but let's trust that God knows what he is doing. Let's trust in particular that that God loves to use his people to talk about his son, that he will give you words. Some people might laugh at you, mock you, some might hate you, but there'll be some that trust in Jesus and they'll be forever changed because you clearly shared who Jesus is why he came, why he lived, that he died for you, that he rose, that he, he is the only way to be forgiven. This crowd dispersed because Paul and the Christians did nothing wrong. And it's, it's this subtle theme that we see through the book of Acts, right? Even in the midst of sketchy trials that are thrown together to try and get Paul or the other apostles in trouble, we see over and over again, Luke's showing they're not breaking laws. 
right? The gospel stirs the pot, but, but the Christians that we're reading about, man, they're following the laws of the land as the town clerk points out here. It was the Ephesians that were actually the ones in danger of breaking the law, not the Christians, right? The gospel certainly does disrupt, but that doesn't mean that Christians are instigators out to cause trouble. Now, obviously, if there are laws that are written that cause us to sin, yes, we, we disobey those laws. We follow our Lord, but we're not to be instigators. We're not to be troublemakers. Christians really ought to be this, this conundrum, right? As, as, as non-Christians look at, at some of the things that, that we believe, our convictions, our values, and, and they're diametrically opposed at times to those. So they, they hate that about us, but then they also see how we live. They see how we live with gentleness and respect, how we serve, right? How, how all these adults do a, a camp for foster kids and none of them are paid. That should be a conundrum as they see how we love people. And hopefully, perhaps God may use that conundrum to open a door for them to hear the truth of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you how patient, for how patient you are in in sanctifying us, in dealing with uh, the parts of us that, man, that's our old self, and, and they need to be let go of, Lord. I thank you that you continue to convict us of sin, Lord. I thank you that, that you are faithful, that, that you are working in the hearts of those who have not yet responded to the gospel. Lord, would you give us courage? Would you give us faith to trust that, that there are some in fact, many more than we would anticipate that will come to trust in you, Jesus, all over this planet, Lord. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.